they have esteem problems. I've studied this for years. They don't feel worthy. They feel like they're imposters. And I think that they tend to back off because they don't feel comfortable. You're not as good as your last victory, and you're not as bad as your worst defeat. Your, your self-esteem has to be consistent. And so here's the tactical advice. You have to isolate negatives, and you have to generalize positives, not the other way around. But what happens? We default to examining our failures. We don't default to examining our successes. The normative pressure is that we're guilty today. The normative pressure is that we're not performing well enough. We're not doing the right thing, when it's simply not true. I think our, our purpose should be to make everybody feel worthy and not make everyone feel guilty. And you cannot rewrite the past to try to improve the future. All you can do is look to the future having learned your lessons. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Baloo, and boy, do we have an exciting guest lined up for you today. Today's guest is one of the leading thought leaders in the world of thought leadership. This individual has been one of the top business consultants on planet Earth for well over two decades. He's written some of the seminal books assisting other thought leaders in how to value themselves properly in the marketplace. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only, the legendary Alan Weiss. Welcome to the show, Alan. Thanks, Nikki. You keep talking. I like listening to you. <laughs> God bless your heart. So, Alan, the, the folks who listen to this show tend to be fellow thought leaders, and there is a small minority of them that are CEOs and founders who are really interested in the world of industry thought leadership and personal branding. But most of them are folks very much like myself, like you, and they want to learn from you. They want to learn from you how they can take their business, their practice, their life to the next level. But before they can open themselves up to you and receive your wisdom, they got to get to know you and fall in love with you and your story. So tell us your backstory. How'd you get to be the great Alan Weiss? Well, I don't know about great, but uh, when I got out of uh, Rutgers, I worked for Prudential for a while, uh, which is like being in prison at the time. Maybe it still is today. I don't know. Uh, but I was recruited by a consulting firm in Princeton, New Jersey, and I worked there for 11 years. And um, I learned the business. You know, I was in my 20s. and I learned to travel the world on somebody else's dime. And uh, in the mid 80s, I was recruited to be president of a consulting firm here in Providence, which is how I got to Rhode Island. And uh it was owned by W. Clement Stone, the financier who um, was worth about $450 million. And we hated each other. <laughs> 15, wow. Yeah, 15 months later, he fired me. And what happened was, you know, he had made his money in insurance. He was a brilliant insurance guy uh, in the 20s and 30s and 40s. But he attributed this to positive mental attitude. And I told him uh, positive mental attitudes did not produce $450 million. $450 million produced a positive mental attitude. He had his, his cause and effect mixed up. And if he gave everybody $450 million, everybody would have a positive mental attitude. Well, he didn't like that. And so he fired me. And so 
Uh, we didn't have a whole lot of money in the bank at that point. Our kids were in private school. And uh, my wife said, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going out on my own. No, no morons ever going to fire me again. And she said, fair enough, but you better get serious. Just like that. And so I did. And I made two decisions that saved my life. One was, this is a relationship business. And I would sell myself. I would forge trusting relationships. The second is, I was never going to charge by a time unit, a person sitting in a seat, or anything like that. I was going to charge based on the value I provided. Uh, and off I went. Uh, in 88, uh, three years later, I wrote my first book. My fourth book was Million Dollar Consulting in 92. It's in its sixth edition today, 30 years later on the shelves, which is sort of Peter Drucker territory. And uh, I've gone from a corporate marketplace uh, for the early stages of my career now to a retail marketplace where I help entrepreneurs, consultants, professional services providers be better at what they do and lead a life they couldn't imagine. So in a nutshell, there's there's where I am. You know, W. Clement Stone, that's very interesting that you uh, knew that man. I had Jack Canfield on the podcast, and Jack used to work with uh, W. Clement Stone as well. And Jack, Jack Canfield and I are both in the Speaker's Hall of Fame. We know each other. Oh, okay. Cool, cool, cool. He's he, he's a good he's a good shit. I like him. He's a good man. Yes. Um, and one of my clients that I wrote a book with is a fellow by the name of Perry Wong. And Perry Wong is the number one insurance agent for combined insurance, which is W. Clement Stone's insurance company that got sold to Chubb Insurance many years later. So small world. Well, just to add in just 30 seconds, Stone made his money by selling burial insurance. He would go through sweatshops and for two cents or so a week, he would sell burial policies so that people would not be buried in a pauper's field that have an independent burial and be identified. And it, people could afford two cents a week. And he, he, he trudged these factories and sold it, made a fortune, and then was smart enough to sell out and get some brilliant financial advice. That's what he was brilliant at, not positive mental attitude. Yeah, got it, got it, got it, got it. So it, it's it's just a small world that there's so many touch points to W. Clement Stone among the people that uh, I've interviewed. A couple of weeks ago, I interviewed a woman by the name of Lynn Twist, and she worked with Buckminster Fuller. And two days before uh, I interviewed her, I read a book by Robert Kiyosaki, and he'd worked with Buckminster Fuller. And it, it just seems to be certain messages congregate in in my presence through the universe and it's just an incredible thing for my you know, no, it's about what you said before it's about thought leadership you know uh, marshall goldsmith and i wrote a book together and we're buddies and i asked him at one point you know how do you think somebody becomes a thought leader and he says you hang out with them simple as that he he carried peter drucker's bag literally carried peter drucker's briefcase how do you become a thought leader you hang out with them i like it osmosis so why do you think it is, Alan, that so many thought leaders and frankly, business people in general undervalue themselves and undercharge and fall into the time for money trap? They have esteem problems. I've studied this for years. You know, I wrote value-based fees, uh, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. It's now in its third edition. Uh, and I began, you know, I thought, well, that's the answer, value-based fees. Then I said, well, why aren't people following this advice, you know? And then I realized that they don't feel worthy. They feel like they're imposters. Uh, I don't know, 25 years ago, maybe, a woman, uh, I think her name was Dr. Rosemary, I want to say Chase. She wrote a book called The Imposter Syndrome or The Imposter Phenomenon. And she interviewed executives, athletes, 
um, entertainers. And she found that something like 84% of them felt like imposters. Uh, and, you know, the actor who's holding the Oscar award at the end of the ceremony is worrying about where he'll get his next work because he just got an award for playing somebody who isn't him or isn't her. So uh, I think that it's a question of esteem. And I think that they tend to back off because they don't feel comfortable. I used to give people I coached um, an exercise, look in the mirror and say the fee is $50,000. Modest fee today. The fee is $50,000. And they say the fee is they couldn't say it. I said, "What is the buyer too tough? You're looking in the mirror." But that's the, way it goes. <laughs> the fee is fifty thousand dollars. That's a good exercise. Yeah, I'm going to double it to say the fee is a hundred thousand dollars. Inflation and all. Inflation, right? Yeah, but that's good. That's good. I, when, you know, I told you I worked in Princeton, New Jersey, and the the fellow who started that firm, Ben Trigo. Uh, who's deceased for about 10 years now, but we've been friends and he was as close to a genius as I've ever stood. And when I was a kid, he would drag me to New York and he would sell the strategy program, which at the time was 15,000. But, you know, in the 70s, 15,000 was a lot of money. Yeah. And back then you could smoke wherever you wanted to and Ben smoked a cigar. And he would smoke a cigar in these meetings. And I, I said to him on the elevator on the way down once, I mustered the courage and I said, Ben, the cigar. He said, what about it? I said, it's rude. He says, not rude. I said, why do you need a cigar? He says, because when the client asks me what the fee is and I tell him $15,000, if I don't put the cigar in my mouth, I begin to giggle. And so here's a guy. <laughs> he, had a, he had a $40 million international firm and he couldn't say it. Oh my God, that's hilarious. Absolutely true story. I think I'm going to name this episode Title this episode, I should say. How do you become a thought leader? You hang out with one. You know what I mean? <laughs> that could be the name of your next book, Alan. It's not a bad idea for a book title. <laughs> That's pretty million dollar thought leader. I'll think about that. Yeah, yeah. It's good, man. It's good. Okay. So esteem issues. I've had esteem issues. I mean, there are times where I ask for big fees and I feel nervous when I'm asking for big fees. Sometimes there's times when you know, I interview a really big thought leader and I get a little bit nervous when I'm talking to them. I go, okay, well, who the heck am I? First time I met Jack Canfield, I was nervous. Now he put me at ease, but he's Jack Canfield, man. And who who am I compared to Jack Canfield? But I told Jack this and he just said, but you're the host of the Thought Leader Revolution. He said, I've never been on a, on a podcast that's just for thought leaders. And I looked at the list of thought leaders you have. He said, to tell you the truth, Nikki, I was slightly nervous myself. You've had some good guests on the show. I laughed, man. You know, it was pretty funny from my perspective. But yeah, it makes sense. that That's a reason that a lot of people undervalue themselves is because they don't think they're worth it. That's so right. what's the solution? How do, you, well, how do you get past imposter syndrome? I'll give you a strategic and a tactical answer. The strategic answer is this. You're not as good as your last victory and you're not as bad as your worst defeat. Your, your self-esteem has to be consistent. And you have to understand that just because you had a great victory doesn't mean that you should be, uh, you know, on a buying spree and, and drinking champagne every day and setting off skyrockets. Uh, don't let your head get so big it becomes an entry in the Macy's Day Thanksgiving Day parade, you know. Uh, on the other hand, just because you fail at something doesn't mean you're hopeless. It doesn't mean you're terrible. And so here's the tactical advice that real people really have to understand. You have to isolate negatives. And you have to generalize positives. Not the other way around. So here's what people usually do, Nikki. They go into some place, they don't make a sale. And they walk out saying, I'm a terrible marketer. They generalize a negative. Instead of saying, 
on this day, in this place, with this person, I didn't make the sale. That's isolating the negative. Conversely, people with low esteem tend to, they get a sale and they say, oh my God, I was lucky. Instead of saying, I've become a really solid marketer. Now, the reason this is so important is that the way you talk to yourself, self-talk, informs your behaviors. And that's the manifestation that people will see. Now, just to give you some social proof for this, you think about raising kids. If your kid misses a kick on the field, a, a football game, soccer game, you want to say to the kid, don't worry, no one could have made that shot. No one could have done that. You don't say to the kid, you know, you're awfully awkward out there. Conversely, the kid comes home, has an A on a history test. You don't say you got lucky today. What you say is you become quite a scholar. This makes a profound difference in how kids are raised, right? I have a on my blog, my daily blog, I have a category that says it's not your mother's fault, right? So uh, what we have to do tactically is to isolate the negatives to a particular time and place and generalize the positives so our self-talk is positive and our resulting behavior is positive. That's the key. But what happens? We default to examining our failures. We don't default to examining our successes. The normative pressure is that we're guilty today. The normative pressure is that we're not performing well enough. We're not doing the right thing. When it's simply not true. But that's what we're led to believe. That makes sense. That makes complete sense. And you're 100% right. When I win really, really big, first thing I say to myself is I got lucky, man. That's probably not going to happen again. I even think that sometimes it's probably not going to happen again. I mean, when you when you hit your number on roulette, you got lucky, yeah. right? When you make a sale, it's not because you're lucky. It's because you have value. Yeah. This is bang on. On examining, you know, uh, examining your wins. And you should examine your wins more. I'm going to do this. This is pretty brilliant. This is pretty brilliant. This is a strategy that you've got to implement over time. It's not going to happen immediately. But if you implement this over time, it'll make you feel more worthy. And when you feel more worthy, it'll be easier for you to ask for what you're, you really want. It'll be easier for people to say yes, because they'll feel congruent with what you're asking. And they'll go, oh, yeah, of course she's worth it. Well, you need a trusted other to hold you accountable, too. You know, when I, I coach a hell of a lot of people globally. And when one of them starts to say to me, I struggle with this, you know, I have a hard time with this. I tell them to knock it off. You know, you might have a challenge. You might like to do something better. But stop telling me you're hopeless. I really don't want to hear it. Do you ever see that little uh, clip uh, with Bob Newhart where he plays a psychologist? Yeah, yeah. That, he yeah, yeah. Charges, uh, it that just reminded me of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, stop it. It's $5 and I don't make change. Right. <laughs> he says, well, you, you still have two minutes left. <laughs> you still have two minutes left. Yeah, I don't know. We keep talking. All right, that's funny. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Okay, so... Really, that's what you need. You need to trust the other to hold you accountable. I agree with that 100%. You've got to have someone holding you accountable. Yeah. Um, and you, you've got to change your self-talk. you got to have someone holding you accountable. And you got to practice asking for fees that are based on the value that you provide. So here's the next question. How do you determine what the value you provide is? You determine it with the client because you get objectives. And so you say, whether it's an individual who you're coaching or it's an organization that you're consulting with, you say to your buyer, and only the buyer, never anybody else, you say to the buyer, because that's the person making the fiduciary investment here, you say, look, what do you want to accomplish? And the buyer says, well, we want to increase revenues, we want to increase margins, we want to decrease attrition, whatever it is. And you say, okay, 
let's take a conservative estimate. If we do it by this percent or that percent, what's it worth? And you have the buyer collaborate with you so that when you put the proposal together, it's not numbers you've made up. It's numbers the buyer has come up with. Now, these have to be outcome-based. They can't be something like, uh, we want a better communication. We want people to buy into the message. We want people to have alignment. Th those are human resource objectives, and they're worthless, absolutely worthless. You can create more alignment till the cows come home and lose money. Mm -hmm. And so you're looking for improvements in the external world from your operation. Once you have that, then you monetize it. So if a client says, look, if we do what you and I are talking about, we'll save a million dollars next year. And then I say, fine, we're going to cut that in half. We're going to take 500000 And by the time I add up various things, we might have, say, $2 million of improvements or savings or whatever uh, on a conservative basis. And then my feeling is a 10 to 1 ratio is what you want. So $200,000 fee for $2 million. Where else do you get 10 to 1 these days? Unless you bought Apple stock way back, you're not getting 10 to 1 anywhere, right? Yeah. And so uh, the, it's what this is, is a very good deal for the client uh, in terms of ROI and equitable compensation for the consultant. And that's a good deal. That's what everybody wants. Excellent deal. Yeah. So $2 million in improvements means a 200K consulting fee. Makes right. sense. And the other thing is that you always give options. Option one, option two, option three. Uh, and each option has more value. So, you know, if people um, people love uh, to see value increased. Now, the psychology here is that I don't go above three because the, the literature has shown that when people have a lot of options, they freeze. And some people still have the money in like low interest savings accounts because they have so many investment options, they don't know what to pick, so they do nothing. But, you know, if you think of a, an auto dealership they throw you the keys and they say, yeah, test drive the car and come on back. And they come back and they say, how'd you like it? And the person says, this is a very good car. And they say, well, you look really cool in it. I say, I look cool in it. Well, that's great. And they say, but around the corner here, I have a car you look even cooler in. Costs a little more, but would you like to see that? And the person says, well, I guess no harm in that. And so logic makes you think and emotion makes you act. And a sale is an emotional transaction. So too many people intellectualize it instead of emotionally showing how someone will benefit because behind every corporate objective, there's a personal objective. And if, of course, if you're just dealing with an individual, it's all individual objective. And so you need an emotional contact. You don't want chess here. You want rugby. Hmm. Behind every corporate objective is an individual objective. I've never heard that said before. That's let, me give you, let me give you the social proof. Yeah. So somebody says, look, yeah, when I want you to help me um, uh, uh, get better teamwork uh, and better performance uh, so we have a better uh, customer results so we're not duplicating effort and we'll save money by not duplicating effort. Well, that's fine. That's an outcome. However, what's really at work here is that this CEO doesn't want to play any more role as a referee. Sick of it. He's tired of refereeing among teams and interest groups and executives. If I can lift that, so that CEO, it's worth a great deal. Yeah, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. And it's the truth, you know. So that's why it's a mistake to go and do a deal with HR in most cases, right? There are no deals with HR. HR has no money. 
You know, HR is it's 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 some kind of ephemeral thing down there. It's an existential view of the world where, you know, let's all be happy and change things. I mean, HR is a vestigial appendage, you know, it's it's less worthy than an appendix. And it should be out in the line areas. I mean, line people should be responsible for those kinds of things. Uh, and any kind of improvement initiative in the organization should have a demonstrable improvement in the well-being of the organization in terms of its income, in terms of its repute, in terms of its brand, and so forth. Yeah. And you have to be working with people who can make that happen. You're making me think, which I really appreciate. There is something that I'm wrestling with right now. So if you don't mind... I'm doing this interview with you. I'm going to ask you your thoughts on it, okay? Sure, sure. So for the last seven and a half years, I have been working primarily with a lot of business coaches, consultants, even health coaches, relationship coaches, all around helping them be seen as a thought leader, as the go-to authority in their space. We've worked with a couple hundred people during that time frame very closely. We've worked with several thousand in just, you know, one-up type situations. Now, earlier this year, for the very first time, the CEO of a technology company wanted to work with us. And he has 20 employees, $10 million a year in revenue. And his thinking was, I need a stronger personal brand I need to be seen by the marketplace as an industry thought leader. So we worked with him. It was really great. We love working with him. It was easier to work with him. He had more money to pay, all that good stuff. Then we worked with a, another CEO of a uh, real estate investment company. And then another tech CEO out of Austin, Texas. Now we're in Toronto, so it was great. And we've got a couple of uh, other CEOs that we're in conversations with. One of them, I think today we're going to get to sign some deals with. And I had a light go off in my head that, you know, it might be smart for us to create a new um, cluster, a new client approach to CEOs, founders, C-suite executives around helping them create a powerful personal brand and be seen as an industry thought leader. Now, the reason I like this is, A, like you say, they've got more money. They they are the ones who want to make an improvement. If, if this is an approach that we want to seriously make in the marketplace, um, based on what you've been teaching us today, what are the things that I need to be talking about with these CEOs? Should I be I'm, talking? I'm, I'm, I'm about to make you a lot of money. You're missing one question, Nikki. Sure, the tell question me. Is, the question is simple. The question is why? And so if someone wants to improve their brand, their presence, their repute, their image in the marketplace, their thought leadership, you have to ask them why. And the why is going to be things like this, because it will bring more investors to our firm, because I'll be able to attract more talent to the firm, because I'll be able to cut attrition, because I'll be more effective with the media who will promote our firm, and so forth and so on. And so there's always a why, and that's called going up the decision chain. And so now I'm finding out the real strategic reason you want to do this. So it's not just a matter, let's say, of being more informed and comfortable in front of the press, the media. It's really a question of uh, being effective in the media so that the image of your company uh, is heightened and people uh, look to get your products or invest in you. 
So if you ask why, you'll find the real value. Okay. Yeah, that's smart. That's good. The things we came up with was the investors attract talent and attract more customers. But I, I never even thought of attracting more media attention, the right media attention and reducing attrition. That's pretty brilliant. You are right. You're about to make me a lot of money. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Once I sign my first million dollar deal, I'm, 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 I'm going to do something very nice for you. <laughs> yeah, well, a, a bottle of Macau and a good cigar. I'm happy. You got it. You got it. You got it. Uh, well, we're, we're in Canada. We should be able to uh, bring you over here and get you a proper cigar. <laughs> you know, I used, I used to run Canada for, for that firm in Princeton. I used to, Canada was part of my domain. Well, that's, that's fantastic. Okay. So, you know, normally these conversations go for 45 minutes to an hour, but I got to tell you, your answers are so on point uh, that I'm not even sure that there's a whole lot more I ought to be asking you around the subject of thought leadership. So I'm going to ask you this, and then we can move to the wrap-up phase. What would be your top three, what we call expert action steps? These are your three best pieces of advice for my listener to take on, to take their business or their life to the next level. Uh, okay, so let me just preface it by saying this. Uh, I used to run an annual thought leadership conference. And I would have people in like James Carville and Dan Pink and Jonah Berger and people like this to talk about how they got to where they are in thought leadership. And then last year, uh, I ran one called Beyond Thought Leadership. And in that one, I had wow. six people from four different countries come, my clients, who explained to the, my assembled group there uh, what they did in terms of thought leadership. So I think that um, what people have to keep in mind is this, whether... Uh, whether moving up in some of the thought leadership ranks or moving up in leadership ranks, it's this. Number one, uh, you have to have a, a huge degree of resilience. Uh, nothing always works all the time. And everything is a learning experience if you can bounce forward from it. Mm -hmm. So the ability to be resilient and to move ahead is key for leaders, key for thought leaders. Uh, and... Um, uh, you know, if you take a look at the pandemic, uh, some people panicked, some people hid, uh, but some people said, okay, this is the this is what we're dealing with now. These are the new realities. Let's move ahead. The second thing you need is you have to, because of that, you need to be able to operate well in large degrees of ambiguity. Uh, you have to be willing to walk through the fog uh, and say to people, follow me. And they say, do you know the exact journey? And you say, no, but I know the destination and we'll find a way. Uh, number three, you need a very highly developed sense of humor because humor does two things. It gives you perspective and it alleviates stress. And so people learn well when there's some humor involved. And of course, self-deprecating humor is the best. I'm not saying to make fun of others, but I am saying you can make fun of yourself. Uh, some people just don't accept anybody making fun of them, of course, and don't make fun of themselves. And they're, I consider them very limited people, very defensive, very low esteem. And then the final thing I'd say is this. You have to have a huge intellectual curiosity. Uh, I find people who read solely business books are boring as hell. You have to read biographies. You have to read histories. Uh, you have to read fiction. Uh, and you have to be willing to take in the world. You know, I've been to 63 countries. Uh, and uh, it's while, you know, video or the, the new uh, Apple, uh, you know, 
<laughs> the new Apple sort of, uh, you know, uh, virtual reality is interesting. Uh, it, does, it, it, it doesn't come close to being there. Until you've stood on the Great Wall of China and feel like an ant, you just don't know what that's like. So you have to have an intellectual curiosity and you have to be voracious in perpetual learning. And if you do that, what happens, Nikki, is not just you don't just become a thought leader and so forth. You become an object of interest to others. And when you're an object of interest to others, you draw people to you. I, I've uh, trademarked a phrase called the, cha uh, the, um, the chain reaction of attraction. And when you attract people who in turn attract others, you build these tremendous communities because you are the object of interest. And all that, the good news is all that, everything I just said is within your control. The chain reaction of attraction. I love it. That is brilliant. You know, this point that you just made about having a huge intellectual curiosity and being somebody who doesn't just read business books is so bang on. So there's a thought leader. He's very well known. And he's a great guy. He used to be a client of mine when I was a personal fitness trainer. I used to be a, a top fitness trainer. I worked with Olympic gold medalists and some top CEOs. And when I worked with him, he he was he was a great client. Then I started to do some of his events. And his events are high-level events. People from all over the world come. He charges a lot of money. And he was talking about the books that he read. And I asked him, I said, do you ever read any fiction? He said, no, I think fiction's a waste of time. And I I find that a sacrilegious statement. And I told him that. You know, and he was polite and he moved on from there because he didn't really want to engage with me. But I believe that people who don't read fiction are missing out. Fiction ennobles the soul. Storytelling is how we relate to our fellow man and woman. If you are not engaged in reading stories of great things happening in the world, in the minds of some of the best authors, some of the some of the most poetic, creative people that we have, how can you even live a comp a complete, comprehensive life? You well, know. If you want to learn about the Great Depression, you can read history books, or you can read The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. Absolutely. Which tells you really more about the Great Depression than any kind of history book does. You know, uh, The Great Gadsby will tell you about this, you know, this era of this, uh, you know, sort of unthinking, uh, gilded wealth and, uh, and, and the drawbacks thereof. Uh, so I think that it's very important that you mix how you learn by the source by the type of media and so on because right now i mean if, if you're relying on social media for your education you are woefully ill-educated woefully ill-educated is bang on by the source and the media i tell you so i use a um i use a social media platform called goodreads goodreads.com are you familiar with goodreads i am i am they feature a lot of my books on there okay great so uh I'm on Goodreads, and I, I've written a few books, and uh, a few of them are on Goodreads. Uh, they're not as well-known as yours, but they're good books. And for the last, since 2015, I've been tracking how many books I read, and each book, when I when I start, when I finish it, and I write some reviews on them. And for the last six years, I've, I've read at least 100 books a year, paper books, so not audio books, not Kindle books, paper books. And I got to tell you, I think it's made me a better human being. I think it's made me learn more. And it's brought me to a place where I'm curious enough to want to 
learn about certain things and achieve certain objectives that I would never have been able to do if I had not read. And I tell all my clients, you should read. When people come to our events, we give them books as gifts. If you look in here, in my office, I've got a whole bunch of these cabinets full of books. And we've got multiple copies to give to people, you know, because I want people to read. If you're a thought leader, how can you be a thought leader and not be uh, a reader? And not of just one genre of books, but of multiple genres of books. So thank you for saying that. I, I'm glad that I'm not alone in thinking that. Well, you know, it comes to this object of interest I talked about because you have to be able to converse with people. Uh, and if people have read things and you haven't read them or are unfamiliar with the subject matter, you're not an object of interest. You're a hanger on. All set. All right. So before we wrap up, what's the best book that you read lately and what are you reading right now? Right now I'm reading um uh I'm reading Simple Lies. I think it's by Baldacci. And oh I, I love him. I love Baldacci. I read, I read his last book, The 620 Man as well. And uh uh I recently finished a, a book, I forget the name it was it's on a um, during the English Re Revolution, it's a historical account of uh this fortress, which was somebody's great manor home that stood out. Uh, I think it was called the Lansing House. Uh, and and what happened over the, the couple of years of the of the Civil War. Uh, and, uh, you know, since I was graduated uh, in 68, uh, since I did so much reading in college, I've never not had a book on my night table or in my briefcase or on my tablet. Never not had a book since 1968, since June. Um, and I'm in my den right now, uh, and across the hall is my library, and there's about 5,000 books, because even if I read something on a tablet, I buy the hard copy. I like them around me. Uh, and uh, I learned in college that my creative writing teacher said to me, pick an author and read his entire oob, you know, read everything he's written. So I was fortunate enough to just have picked Steinbeck uh, and Updike. And I read Steinbeck's stuff, but Updike was far more prolific. And I read everything he had written and was writing until he died. Yeah. And then more lately, I've written all of John, I've read all of John Irving's work. Uh, and it's a great exercise and it's great fun. Then, you know, you don't like, you don't enjoy everything, but you get a full picture. And the interesting thing, you know, Nikki, is to write dialogue in fiction, you have to know how people think. Yes. So, um, I'm reading uh, one of Dan Jenkins's book and the, the title escapes me. It's one of his golf novels. Do you know Dan Jenkins? You mean the sports guy? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Am I tough? That became a movie with Burt Reynolds back. Yeah, in yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, and I just read his last novel. I just finished that uh, last night. It's called "Stick a Fork in Me, I'm Done," and he's funny as all get out. He's funny as all get out. So he's a guy who used to be pretty liberal in his philosophical alignment. And in the last several years, he's just gone fully against political correctness and his novels just skewer the politically correct. So it's a lot of fun to watch and, and, and to read. And um, I just love reading this man's dialogue and his characters are so wonderfully developed. They're larger than life. They're a lot of fun. Um, a friend of mine introduced me to the work of John McDonald, you know, the Travis McGee books. Did you History ever read this? Yeah. yeah. So really enjoyed reading almost uh, 
two thirds of his books. They're hard to find some of his older books because they're out of print. But well, I'm, look, I'm at the, but this is an example of what I'm talking about. You mentioned Goodreads before, right? You yeah. mentioned Jenkins. You mentioned uh, McDonald, right? Yeah, I knew all three, and so you and I are able to have that conversation, as opposed to saying, "Oh, gee, I, I'm not for me," and you have to bring me up to date on who they are. So th that's the point of reading why you can talk to almost anybody on anything. I mean, I don't know as much about nuclear physics as a as a as a physicist, but sure. I could probably talk about some things. Yeah, absolutely. I'll tell you, I think there is room for a um a podcast, a dialogue between readers um about books, book reviews, talking about great books, because I don't think enough of that gets done out there on social media these days. And and it would be doing a service to humanity to talk about some books and encourage people to buy them and read them. Well, we do that on my in my community. I, on my blog, uh, I have on my forums rather. I have uh, what have you read lately? And it goes on for I don't know. There's thousands of entries, and there's another one that says what have you watched lately? Uh, and we compare notes. This is AlansForums.com, uh, and so uh, I think you're exactly right. But you can't do it on social media. You have to do it within a community where the values are observed and and uh, respected, uh, and where people see each other as peers. And that is uh, I'm superior to you because I have a different attitude. Yeah. So well, I, I think your point like is right. I think the, the important thing is where you do that. Uh, I have a blog called The Uncomfortable Truth. And, uh, you know, on there I talk to people about some of the kinds of things that you've been mentioning today and, and uh, some of the barriers we have to more honest discourse. There's massive barriers to honest discourse. I So I'm originally... Um, an immigrant from the Middle East, I'm a Christian from Iran, and my family left Iran um, in 1980, a year and a bit after the Islamic Revolution took place. And my father decided that this wasn't going to be a great place to raise a Christian family anymore. So he decided to make a plan and get us out of Iran. And we you know, got out of Iran. We lived in Greece for a couple of years and we settled in Canada. I've been so grateful to live in a free country all my life. And my biggest concern today is I see in the Western world, a lot of those freedoms are slipping away. There's a lot of people that are making it impossible for you to say certain things. There's speech codes. How can there be speech codes? There's speech codes back in Iran. That's why we left Iran. You say the wrong thing, you can lose your job, you can lose uh, your home, you can lose everything you have, you can even lose your life. We can't allow that to happen here. We cannot no. allow that to happen here, no matter what. This is the line in the sand that I've drawn. I'm a businessman. Don't want to get into the political fights, but I'm getting in the political fights. I've written a bunch, a couple of books about political correctness and wokeness and, and standing up against that in the corporate world. And I've also gone on TV shows in Canada and the United States speaking about that because, you know, Edmund Burke said, the only condition necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to stand by and do nothing. And I'm not going to go to my grave having done nothing. No, sir. Well, I think our, our purpose should be to make everybody feel worthy and not make everyone feel guilty. Agreed. Uh, and, and you cannot rewrite the past to try to improve the future. All you can do is look to the future, having learned your lessons. Amen, my friend. You cannot. I'm going to write that down. That's pretty beautiful, pretty profound. Alan. I do hope you'll come back. I've really enjoyed this episode. So if folks want to get a hold of you, consume your material, buy your books, where would you like to send them? The best thing to do is alanweiss.com, A-L-A-N-W-E-I-S-S.com. -S You'll find free audio, free video, 
free text. You can sign up for all my free newsletters and podcasts and everything else. Uh, and so I hope you'll do that and take advantage of it. We'll make sure we put that in the show notes. I really appreciate it. Alan, um, I feel like I've made a new friend. Hope you feel the same way. Like to stay in touch. Like to do more of these with you in the future and see what other ways we might be able to collaborate together. Um, I'd like to be a part of, uh, you know, what have you read lately? I want to contribute to that and I want to see what other people are reading. So if there's a way to do that, I'd like to find out how to do that. And uh, God bless you, sir, for the work that you do and for serving the spirit of free enterprise because free enterprise needs its champions today more than ever. Thanks, Nikki. I really appreciate it and appreciate uh, being with you. Thank you so much. God bless you, my friend. And that wraps up another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's incredible guest, the one and only Alan Weiss, go to the show notes at thethoughtleaderrevolution.com or wherever you happen to listen to this episode, be it iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Audible, or what have you. Until next time, goodbye. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice.